Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We titled this sermon series, A Faith That Works, A Faith That Works in Real Life, because James doesn't focus a whole lot on explaining theology. A lot of letters in the New Testament are explaining how all the theology works, how it all fits together. But James instead says, all this theology, we're going to apply it to our everyday life. We're going to apply it to what it means to walk and follow Jesus. That these big doctrines of God move you somewhere to where you can't just go about your life, but you must follow God's direction. And we'll be here for 13 weeks, and then we're also going to study it in our community groups for another nine months. We're going to know the book of James well, because here's my hope for us, church, that we apply its words and then realize we inevitably fail at it, and then reapply the words, and reapply the words, until slowly we're made new. Because this has tough things to tell us, but these are tough things we need to hear and obey. And know what it means to follow the God of the universe. We could have called this series Gospel-Centered Living. It's the gospel made and applied to our life. It answers the question of if the gospel is true and we believe, then how should we live? And James's answer would be this. That because of the gospel, we can live with wisdom consistently in community. Enduring suffering well while taking extra care for the poor, extra care for God's money as God owns it all, and extra care of the words of our mouth, both that we speak to one another and the prayers we speak up to God. That James wants us to be careful how we live because the gospel has made us new, and he wants to teach us how to live with wisdom consistently in community, enduring the hard things that come and hitting our mouths, our money, and those who are in need. And look how James introduces himself. And remember, as always in the New Testament, everything written in the New Testament is written by a real person, a flesh and blood person from the first century, writing a letter usually to other flesh and blood humans, followers of Jesus, gathered together in local churches. Just James is a letter from this James to real people, but inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to teach all people of all times. So even though this letter wasn't didn't arrive in your mailbox today, it is a letter for you, church, as God's people. Look at verse 1, how it introduces itself. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion Greetings. See, James introduces himself by just saying hello, but saying hello in an interesting way. He gives two titles to Jesus that will be important for the book off the bat. He calls him Lord, meaning Lord of the universe, the only God. And he also calls Jesus Christ, which is a technical word for Messiah, the promised Savior of all Old Testament prophecy coming true in this anointed man to save us from sin, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And this is instructive for us because there's no other way to be a Christian. There's no other option. 
Jesus is Lord of your life and Savior of your soul by the work of Jesus' cross and resurrection. It's who Jesus is. To follow or believe Jesus is anything less than that is to follow an imaginary Jesus who cannot save you and is not real. So James starts his letter by declaring, this is who Jesus is, whom I am a servant. And he says, greetings to the 12 tribes in dispersion. And the 12 tribes is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. And even in his day, they're no longer identifiable. That there were 12 tribes and they've been scattered abroad. But he's saying that to tell people that God is bringing his purposes all together in this Jesus Christ. He is bringing the long sought salvation to God's people and gathering them as the church. And brings this question that who is James to say all this? He's writing one big letter. So who is this man? Who is James? And James was a popular baby name in the first century. We have at least four James, or exactly four James, in the New Testament. So we got a couple of candidates of who it could be. Who is James? And the first candidate is James the disciple. He's the brother of John, sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. But this James is unlikely because he dies in 44 AD. Christ rises from the dead around 33. This James is martyred in 44, probably too early to be the writer of this letter. The other two James are of low stature to write such an authoritative letter that needs no more description than just his name, James, which leaves us with our fourth candidate. This is James, what we would call today the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. And his name and his role pops up all over scripture. Look with me. Says James is one of the select individuals who Christ appeared to after his resurrection. Paul, on his first post-conversion visit to Jerusalem, went and saw James as a point. Paul did the same on his last visit to Jerusalem, made sure he saw James. Paul called him a pillar of the church in Galatians as well. When Peter was rescued from prison, the first thing he said is, y'all need to go tell James. I'm getting like double mic, double the power for that point. And James was the leader of this important council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. They were leading and helping settling a big first controversy or one of the first controversies in the church. And last, the book of Jude, my man Jude here could just identify him simply in the title of his book as, yeah, I'm the brother of James. James is so well known, I can just be James's brother and things will be fine for me to write this letter. And James is so well-known, the kicker is this, that he doesn't mention what he's probably most well-known for. It's not because he's a notable pastor that he gets to write a letter of the New Testament, but rather James is the brother of Jesus Christ himself, his actual half-brother through Mary. He's likely the eldest brother after the firstborn Jesus, as he's listed first in Matthew 13. And notably in John 7, James doesn't believe Jesus is God at first. He struggles with it. And we probably struggle with it too, that like, oh, my eldest brother, he's always been cool. He doesn't seem to sin, but like now he's doing miracles and teaching this way. And mom says it's legit, but I don't know. And you have this picture of all the siblings struggling with what it means that their brother, their 
blood brother is the Messiah of the universe. But now we see that's all changed. James can simply call himself servant or slave of God and Jesus, Lord and Christ, putting God and Jesus on the same footing, saying his brother is the Lord of the universe and the only Savior of mankind. So we see James is a man who's been deeply changed. And James is also a direct man. You'll notice his writing gets right to the point. Anyone got a friend that gets right to the point that's like super direct? Maybe put a hand up. Anyone got a super direct friend? A couple of you? If you can't think of one, it's, it, it's probably you, friend. <laughs> you're the one in the friend group. If you're like, no one's really direct. It's like, oh, well, let me tell you. And it's okay. Direct is good. Keeps clean, nice relationships in check. So James is a direct person, and he writes directly because as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, some things have gone down. Suffering has hit the Jerusalem church. Persecution over their faith. We just mentioned the other James has been stoned. Deaths are prominent. Jailings are happening. Beatings are occurring. And so people have scattered from the city of Jerusalem. So when he writes to the people in dispersion, it's the people who are suffering, who've been on the run and moved away and moved in with their auntie or whoever else to try to keep living their life. So he writes this letter with an urgency of how do we endure trials? How does he continue to pastor these people who could feel lost to the wind in their life? And he jumps right in saying the way to endure trials is to rely and rejoice in God's trustworthiness. Look with us at verse two and four. It says, count it all joy, my brothers. All here could also mean great or pure joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, everyone hates trials. No one signs up to struggle for life to be hard, to life to be painful and unpredictable. But verse 2 teaches that trials are not an if thing, but a when thing, whenever these trials come. For the Jerusalem church, they were right then. For you, they might be coming up. They might be right now. You might just be getting out of one, but they're inevitable. It's a part of life in a broken and sin-scarred world. And James is telling us that our trials are meant to teach us, not destroy us. When hard things happen, the first thing we think is usually, this is the end of me. Whether it's our job, our relationship, a kid, a house, whatever it is, we immediately hit the button that says, this is the end, the ship is going down. And James is saying, this trial isn't meant to sink you, it's meant to sanctify you. It's meant to mature you. It's meant to make you more like Jesus. That the trials in your life have purpose from a God who loves you, 
Therefore, we can count as all joy, not only joy. We're not saying your only emotional response to a trial should be joy, but one of the emotional responses, a true emotional response, can be pure or great joy because God's testing of your faith is producing something. There is no trial or suffering wasted in a believer's life. Instead, God has promised to produce something. That coming into this trial, going through this trial, coming out of this trial, that God is producing a steadfast faith in you. And what kind of trials do do this? Is it big theological trials? Is it little bitty trials? Is it bi- what kind of trials make all this happen? Well, the text just says various kinds of trials, meaning all of them, whether they're tiny or big. Big like death, big like job loss, big like despair, big like bad medical reports, big like a failed dream, or little ones like annoying people, like traffic jams, late bills, and speeding tickets. That the things that God is teaching about his plan for your trials work, whether it's a tiny trial that you're kind of embarrassed to admit it's frustrating you this much, or a big ginormous trial that you can't even really think about and you push away and try to move on with your life. God sees both trials, and God wants to use both trials to change you. God's plan for your trials, though, starts with perspective that your life isn't about the trial. Your life is not about what you're going through. Your life, Christian, is about Jesus. And that changes the story of the trial altogether. When your life is about Jesus, you can see God's perspective that this trial is meant to produce steadfast faith, that there will be other trials. They feel like they'll never end. They will end. You will have many trials, various trials. And when your life is about Jesus, you can start to sit in God's seat and say, this trial is allowed in their life to bring about maturity in them. And this is so foreign to our culture, you can even be repulsed by that thought. This doesn't exist in our culture. Our culture is so devoid of steadfast faith and resiliency that we think everything that's hard or slow must be bad, broken, and need an app for that. If only Apple could save me from this trial. If only the West Coast could figure it out, we'd be okay. But the truth is this, that everything that's fast and easy and cheap, that's not always right. And in fact, it might bring ruin to your life. There's plenty of apps to ruin your life. The truth is that everything that's worth achieving or will and gonna matter in 2010 or even two years is probably slow, hard, and having sacrifice in the process. Our joy comes from a God who hasn't abandoned us, but rather has purpose for us in our trial. And when you rely on God and rejoice that somebody has a plan and that somebody is on your side and that somebody is worthy of our trust and our somebody is good and is too kind to ever be bad, then suddenly joy starts to erupt in your heart. The trial isn't your God, but your God is still your God. See, when you rely and rejoice on God, suddenly the trial is no longer the biggest thing in your life. 
Have you ever been in a place where the trial just feels like the biggest thing that you can't even think or put your thoughts together because it just feels too big that mom died or the divorce is coming or that you're failing out of school or you're drowning in debt and it's so loud and noisy that you just can't even think. But when you rely and rejoice on God, it starts to show you that as long as the trial is big, God will be small. That as long as you let that trial be big and God be small, you will be overwhelmed. And you will feel crushed and defeated. But when you start to let God be his proper size, when you start to look at the God of the Bible and see that God is huge, that God is enormous, that God is so big, it still means our trial is real, but it starts to shrink to its appropriate size in your life. That that God is enough to move you through this trial. And see, the trial isn't about winning. The trial isn't about beating the thing. The trial isn't about being a champion of some sort. Each trial in the Christian life is simply about trusting God to be God. Passing the trial isn't about it all working out fine. It's not a happily ever after scenario in this life. This isn't a Disney film. People do die. Jobs, marriages, friendships, they all fall apart sometimes. Prosperity isn't God's promise to us. Rather, God's promise is that we can rely and rejoice in a Jesus who will make us perfect and complete. A good way to think of perfect is complete, as whole and holy. That every whole part of your life starts to reflect that God is the God of the universe. And holy, that every part of your life seems to be being changed from the inside out. That's the Savior at work. That's worth holding on to. Prosperity comes and goes. This text even talks about it. But God's promise to you is he will be with you and he's producing something in you. Something that will last now and forevermore. An eternal reward. Christianity does something that our culture and atheism just can't give a satisfying answer to. Because our culture has a lot of different answers to suffering. One is machoism. Rejoice in the pain. I was on a Peloton bike not long ago, and the instructor leaned in and said, go ahead and turn that resistance all the way up. I want you to feel the pain and tell yourself that pain is joy. You are inserting joy in your veins. (laughs) I turned it up. No joy came. A lot of sweat. Didn't love it. But mind tricks like that, they work on children for Santa Claus, not for suffering in real life. Machoism isn't a sufficient answer to your trial. Neither is hedonism. That you're just taught, hey, if there's anything bad in your life, you can't have fun, you can't rejoice, you must just be down and out, and you got to do anything to avoid pain, get away, get to the vacation, quit whatever, don't have resilience, because hedonism, life is about pleasure, so I got to run to that pleasure. I got to break up with that person. I got to end that marriage. I got to do whatever because life is about pleasure and anything that's in my way, I'm just taking care of myself and I better get out of here. That's hedonism. Nor is toxic positivity a good answer. Ignoring the pain, ignoring hard truths. Just stay positive. My attitude's my altitude. We're just going to make it. 
that isolates people who are in actual pain. It kills your soul inside because you can't even be honest with yourself. And it's just a lie. It's just not true. Atheism doesn't have a better answer anyways. Atheism largely acknowledges that suffering is a part of life, but it's all random and meaningless, so just get over it. And Christianity has this unique, beautiful response that said God knows about our pain, God cares about our pain, God's in total control of your trials, and God has a specific purpose in every Christian's suffering that God will receive glory somehow, and and God is working for your ultimate good, which is to produce in you a maturity that you look like the Savior that will burn brighter than 10,000 suns for the rest of all time. You have a rock-solid promise for God that he has not forgotten you. Instead, he is actually with you, that you don't have to fake it till you make it, but can be real with every emotion and firmly put your faith that God is producing something in you, even if you don't see it today or this week or this month or this year. Jesus took the ultimate test and passed, not by avoiding pain or blocking it out, but by depending on God to be as big as he knew his father was. That he would rise from the dead. He didn't die for his sins, he died for your sins and my sins. Jesus is the promise on the other side, the resurrection, that he is always with us. He's not far away at all. See, God is trustworthy because God didn't stay on the sidelines to our suffering, but rather entered this world and took the cross for us. We don't have a God who's far away, but a God who already came near, rose from the dead and said, you can trust me. A lot of times we see the great commission and we think, what a command, what a command, what a mission, what a command. And that's right. But the promise on the end of the great commission might be even bigger than the command. Look with me says this, this is the last words before Jesus ascends. Jesus goes back to God after his resurrection. It says, Jesus came and said to him, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is worth living and dying and giving your life for. That there's this is the God that's called us, me and you and citizens and every church and every believer to go make disciples. And it hangs on a promise. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus is with you. When you say, where is God in this thing? He's like, man, I'm right here. I've never left you. I'm always beside you. When Saul, Paul was persecuting the church of God, killing people, throwing people in jail, Jesus shows up and confronts Paul. And what's he say to him? Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church or my people or some other. Jesus takes your pain, your hurt personally to him. There is not a single tear of your face that God has not caught and collected in a bottle. So the Psalms tell us. That's not sentimentalism. That's just the truth of God's word. What if you are absolutely sure at your next trial that God is with you? That he's producing steadfast faith in you. And he's not going to leave you whether things turn out great or they just become a disaster. 
Jesus is our Messiah. He's not a magician. He's not a genie. He's God. But He promises to be with you always, even to the end of the age, even if you cause the trial through sinful actions, even if you cause the trial by making a mess of your life. We have a Messiah for our messes. And he's going nowhere. And as your pastor, I want to issue you a warning. Here are the two most common ways that people fail their trial. Fail the test. He uses both words in this passage. Because these tests are meant to be passed. God wants you to pass. It's not a, oh, let's see how Andy does this time. Oh, let's see how Clay and Sarah do this time. That's not God. God puts these to grow you. He wants you to fulfill it by depending on him. Here's the two most common ways I've observed. First is this, that instead of relying and rejoicing on God, we trust and rely on ourselves in a trial. That's an immediate fail. Doesn't matter how the trial ends up. You trusted yourself instead of God. See, if you beat the trial in your own eyes, you're elated and you become self-righteous thinking of how great I am. I beat that trial. That boss couldn't keep me down. We nailed it. But if you lose the trial in your eyes, you're devastated instead of elated. You put all your hope in yourself. And when yourself doesn't come through, it's not a lot of hope left on the end of that. Second way to fail the trial when it comes, and this is, I think, the more dangerous one. The trial comes and we immediately put God on trial. We try to flip the script on the test and say, God, if you're good, you'll fix this. God, my child's going into surgery, and if he comes out all right, I'll worship you forever. And if he doesn't, I guess I'm out on this faith. See, here's the truth, church. Before you get to a life and death or mega-sized trial, you're going to have to decide if God is good and trustworthy. Because if you walk into a trial with doubts, and every high, you'll say, God, you're great. And every low, you'll bring them back into the courtroom and act like you're the judge. And all of it is foolishness. And you'll end up looking like a clown. Because God's not on trial. And he is the judge. And we're not God. And I can't think of a worse place to be in a trial than pretending to be God over probably stuff you can't control accusing the only person who 100% wants to help you. God already has an accuser. We already have an accuser. His name is Satan. In Hebrew, his name is Asatan, meaning the accuser. When you put God on trial, you join hands with Satan and start pointing fingers. It's not a place you want to be. It's not a place for God's people. Can you have the fullness of the range of your emotions? Yes, read the Psalms, but read to the end of the Psalm where they said your steadfast love endures forever. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. The boundary lines have landed in pleasant places for me. You have dealt bountifully for your servant. Those are the sorts of things those Psalms end with. That you can have the full range of frustration and anger and sadness, but you also can put joy to say God has not changed. My circumstances have the same God and my salvation lives today. When Job in Job 19 is at the lowest of low, he looks at his friends who are becoming zero help chapter after chapter. 
and he can look at his friends. He says, I know my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth. The rock-solid hope of maybe the oldest book of the Bible is Job who lost it all to know that one day that Jesus would come and stand and that would be more than enough to prove that God is good and what happens to me does not determine my life. Church, I want us to keep passing the test. I want us to see trials as moments for joy and moments to endure. That steadfast meaning is endure is a great word for it. And we can do it. Let us not fail and trip up and put God on trial or rely on ourselves, but rely on God and rejoice in him. Because if God is big and we are small and our trials are real and God's really using our trials to build steadfast steadfast faith and maturity in you, it will look like this. The goal of steadfast faith is endurance in belief, uh, endurance of belief in hard things that makes you fearless in this life. Put an oven there. Is an endurance of belief in hard things that makes you fearless in this life. God wants his people to live in fear, healthy fear of him and nothing else. That this life may knock you down, but this life cannot knock you out. That you start to believe I have a redeemer that lives. And some of us may come to that ultimate moment as many Afghan Christians are fearing and maybe becoming reality that God is either going to bring us through the trial, win, lose, or draw, or he's going to bring us home. And that's not losing. It's just going home for the Christian in death. So many of us have said goodbye to people in our lives. And if they are in Christ, they're going home. And their winning of the trial was to depend on God in and through the very end, that Christ didn't leave them at any moment, but drew them home. Citizens, do you want to be a steadfast and resilient people? Or do you want to be a people who's tossed to and fro by every wind and circumstance of change? We have a choice and a good God, so here's the plan and followed by the promise. If we rely and rejoice on God, we can request his wisdom. He opens up another promise to us. Verse five through eight, check this out. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, hello, that's me, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Reproach means without disappointment. And it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all your ways. You are not on your own in a trial. And God says explicitly, ask me. If you don't know what to do, ask God. And he'll give it generously. And he's not disappointed that you're asking. Remember, God's a father. I don't get mad at Eloise for asking for my wisdom. I wish she'd ask more. That would be great. The other day, she tied herself to a shopping cart. That's a decision. Why? I don't know, but she did it. There could have been a wisdom moment. God is a better father than me, and he wants to give more wisdom than I could ever give Eloise. He wants to help you. He wants to give you answers in the trial, and he will give you as much wisdom as you need for your trial to continue being obedient. Doesn't mean he's going to give you every answer to all the things, but rather he will give you enough to be obedient. 
Charles Spurgeon put the sentiment like this, he will give you enough that you can trust God's heart even if you can't trace his hand. He'll give you enough. He'll reveal you enough. And he'll do it by God's word. Sometimes we're in a situation where you're like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, you know, friend, I do know what to do. Scripture says exactly what to do of what you should do in this situation. It came up right there. Let's do that. Sometimes God's going to use other people. You should regularly ask the people who know you best and you feel know the Lord best for wisdom and advice. I wish that was the norm, and I'm hoping to build that norm of a culture that if you look around and say, who's the wisest person I know that loves Jesus and knows me well, I should just ask for help. I should just ask for advice that God uses scripture, God uses other Christians, and God uses the spirit of God inside you to push and pull you. It will never go against scripture, but God can put the impression and pull you towards to do things, give you certain desires. For me, I had a desire to plant Citizens Church. I had a desire to be a pastor, a desire to be in vocational ministry. And me and Atlanta hit a crisis. It was about three years into Louisville. I saw that seminary was going to finish in about two months, and I had to make a decision. Do I continue in the elder candidate process there at Sojourn and become a pastor here? Everything was looking great. But what would that mean? Did that mean I need to stay there a long time? And so what I did, I felt called to plant a church. Me and Elena prayed, we felt called to plant a church. Instead of going to the next elder meeting and say, hey, I'm planting a church. What do we think about that? Instead, I put together a questionnaire. And I asked people, would you pray for us? And honestly give me feedback. I sent it to about 20 people. Sent it to all my interns, fellow staff members, the elder council. Sent it to people who'd known me a really long time. And just open myself up to submit and vulnerability. Say, hey, tell me everything. Should I be in vocational ministry or do I just love Jesus a lot? Should I be in a pastor elder role? What do you think, man? It's looking great here at Sojourn. They want me to be, but what do you think? Then I listed all the jobs I think I could possibly do in the ministry field. And said, hey, click one. Give me a couple of reasons. By the way, give me some feedback on my strengths, my weaknesses. maybe, Maybe an encouragement box. Put one of those in there. And it took some humility to say, Lord, I believe you speak through your people. They got the Holy Spirit too. I'm not a prophet to myself. And it took time and effort to do this work. But in the end, all 20 came back and said, hey, you should be in vocational ministry. You should be a pastor. And you should plant a church. And that level of wisdom from God through his church by his word, through those qualifications laid in the Bible, through the spirit that had been brewing this in me like a decade, all came together to give us so much confidence and wisdom to be able to endure the trials then and the trials now and the trials that come to say, yeah, the wisdom of God is more than enough. And he brought it through multiple ways, but they all led to the very same thing and solidified me and Elena's hope and endeavor. You don't have to build a questionnaire when you go home. But I do want to give you an example. There's a way to seek wisdom that's just not tossed around, trusting different things on different days. The man that trusts the Lord, the woman that trusts the Lord, takes the faith they have and puts it in the God bucket in prayer, seeking his word, seeking him in prayer, seeking advice, and doesn't take it out of the bucket. Doubting means ripping it out of the bucket. God's not good and pulling it into some other bucket every other day. Keep your hope in the bucket of God and let him give you wisdom to live. 
God's plan for us is to rely, to rejoice, to request wisdom. I love the firmness of faith to request something of God. And then next, realize his values. Look at verses 9 and 11. This is the text that keeps on giving, man. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. All this from Isaiah. So also the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. This is a wonderful section because so many of our trials have to deal with money. Don't they? Everybody give me a little amen. Don't act like you're all rich. You're like, what are you talking about? I must move the yacht this weekend. There's a hurricane coming. That ain't y'all. That ain't me. So many of our trials have to do with money. And so God just gives us a little word right here. He says, the world values money and status, and I don't. God does not value things as the world does. In fact, Jesus teaches that riches can keep you from seeing your need for God. When you have all your needs fixed by money, suddenly you can get a little out of touch of your spiritual needs. So when the riches fail, take the opportunity to realize how vulnerable you really are. The things are a little more delicate. The things could go awry a little easier than you think. Oh, rich man, you need to be aware when things aren't going well for you. Rich woman, when things aren't going well, have a little taste of how it is. That those riches are a gift and you're a little more vulnerable than we think. The same with the poor, exult that one day, enjoy that one day you'll be exalted, that the truest thing about you isn't your bank account or your debt. That this world is real, but it's not the greatest reality of your life. That if you're poor, if you're broke down, if you're not having a lot of money, if you're struggling to get by, that your lot in life is not the last word of your life. That God is not your money. You have a Messiah who's better than your money and bigger. And one day you'll be exalted in the kingdom of God, just like everyone else, even if you were looked down upon in this life. God's saying your money cannot fix these things. Materialism is not your Messiah. It's so tempting because we can touch and feel money and it can do things for us. But God is teaching us to embrace his values of eternity. Seek wisdom how to live in light of eternity and let that steadfast faith grow up. Your bank account can grow. It doesn't make you more mature. Your stock market can go up, your 401k or whatever you got, all that can go up and you stay the same. But God's saying, let this man, this woman mature through the trials. Yes, we should be good stewards of money. Yes, we should work hard to provide for ourselves and provide for others and not be dependent on others. Yes, but it can't be our God. As Jesus explicitly says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Build your finances, be a good steward, learn the Bible's ways of doing so and become a just and equitable person who's giving and generous, just like God with his wisdom. Let's not put our hope there, church. Even though so many of our problems focus on money, it is a terrible God and a great tool. Let's keep money as a tool on the tool book for options and opportunity, not a God in our life, because it will always disappoint and has a way of fluctuating throughout our life. Which leads to James' final verse for today, that we can rest in God's eternal reward. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
So you are blessed. You are getting favor. You're with God. You're living the good life with God to remain steadfast under trial. It doesn't mean that the trial is just going to pop off or be easy. But blessed, a good word to think, is the good life with God. Life with God, his way. That's what it means to be blessed. The good man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God has promised eternity to you, church. He's promised a crown of life to all who love him. If you love Christ, if you've responded in faith to the gospel, the life death for your sins, and resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, then you love Jesus. He saves you and he makes a new heart in you to love Jesus. And a crown of life waits for you. You may feel kicked in the teeth by life, but you can remember even when you've been kicked in the teeth that a crown of life awaits you no matter how this life turns out. And it's not because you won the trial, but because you ran the race right. You follow King Jesus in dependence. And so the crown of life waits for you, church. We get uncomfortable with this idea of reward. We're like, yes, Jesus saves me. But the Bible talks all the time about salvation and reward. That what we do in this life still does matter. That rewards are a thing. That crown of life and crowns are possible that God is still urging you on to endure your trials of faith, to be rich in good works. Do not give up doing what is good. Move forward, church, knowing that the crown of life awaits you. For we have an ancient faith, and the Old Testament is full of this story. This is Adam's story, Job's story, Noah's story, Abraham's story, David's story, Daniel's story, Nehemiah's story, Ezra's story, Jeremiah's story, of great struggle and trial and temptation and all these things moving forward to the crown of life, whether they won or lost in the world's eyes. And it's also the author of this book's story too. See, James knows all about trials and trusting God. Because about a dozen years after this letter, James will be stoned to death in the streets of Jerusalem in 62 AD. We have it confirmed both by church history's report and secular reports that say this man, this leader, eventually took the stones for the very specific thing of not recanting that his brother was God, the Lord, in Christ. Church, I pray the book of James helps us build a steadfast faith, a faith that works. And I hope you join me on this journey of the next dozen or so weeks to obey the Lord Jesus from his word and learn to embrace those trials with faith and dependence on the Lord. Let us rely. Let us rejoice. Let us request his wisdom. Realize God's values and rest that there's an eternal reward for all who follow Jesus. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.